welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book, or as I like to say, Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan, talking about film for the next half hour. And with me today is uh, writer and director Richard Linkletter, who's here to talk about his film Boyhood. Welcome to KPFA. Hey, good to be here. Now, it's it's interesting. This is a, f- a film that's been getting a lot of buzz. You did something quite unusual where you wound up filming for 12 years, uh, a, l- a few days mm-hmm. each time. And it tells the story of a boy named Mason and his sister, Samantha, and what happens to them over the course of these 12 years. When you started, uh, were you really focusing just on Mason, or is is it somehow how things developed over time? No, the whole film was going to be a portrait of this family over it's his parents and his sister and himself over over the twelve year period. But it's he's on the kind of first through twelfth grade public education uh, grid, you know, that we're all placed on. So I thought that would be the structuring device of the movie. It ends with him going off to college, a young man. So that was sort of the structure of the movie. You know, film, you have a limitation a novelist, let's say, doesn't have. You know, novelist can just write. And then he turns 17. And, you know, a film, you, you've got the limitation of the physicality of your young actor. So it was a, it took 12 years to tell the story that I wanted to tell, which was um, how we grow up. You know, I couldn't say that in just one, one part of it i had to kind of see the whole process and ultimately it's a portrait of you know growing up this century but it's also a portrait of parenting you know the the you realize the adults they're not fixed you know they're they're still growing and changing and maturing also so then it seems like how you chose the casting at the very beginning it was kind of risky because <laughs> you're trying to figure out who these people are now mm-hmm. um, and then who they're going to develop into as actors over time. And you, you chose, you know, this this boy who, uh, Eller Coltrane, and then you chose your daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you chose two actors who are more professional actors, Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke. So... How did you, did you, what did you have a sense of at the very beginning? I mean, it's a huge leap. Um, I've never been in that position before. I don't think anyone has where you're casting someone and you have to imagine not just who they are today, which is what you're looking for, but, oh, well, 12 years from now, are you still going to be, you know, the right person for this part? And, you know, a lot goes on between... 7 and 18, you become a different person, potentially. You know, there's puberty ahead. There's all this. But um, I think the film was designed to incorporate incrementally, year by year, whatever little changes went on with everybody, the inevitable evolution of, of people, to kind of adjust my early notions of what the film is and just kind of go where they went and and in their own way it's still the film i set out to do but i always told eller it'll kind of fuse with who he is so that's not really him at the beginning of the film but by the end i feel that is sort of him and did you have a sense of who you wished that mason was going to be by 18 or like did you have this idea that you were going to kind of create some kind of image or did it uh, is it totally different than what you imagined? The film was really just trying to capture how we mature, how we grow up, age, you know, and 
I think I could have done that with anybody on the one hand if they you know stayed with the project and it reached its own maturity. And that would have been interesting probably in into itself, regardless of what kind of person he, he grew up to be. But I did get very lucky. He grew up to be kind of the best version of what I could have hoped for. He's a very thoughtful, sensitive young man. Um, so I, it's hard to say how much the film itself, he influenced the film, like I was implying. You know, he gave a lot of himself to it. But as it went on, he, he speaks very eloquently, Eller Coltrane, about how the film influenced him. You know, just being a part of this and the people he was around and the character he was playing, all that. So um, I think we'll never know. That's kind of a mis- That's the ultimate mystery, right? The eternal mystery is what makes us who we are. So part of you has to think, well, that's him. That guy at the end is the same, you know kid at the beginning but are we the same people we were when we were little it's kind of yes and no you know well i was thinking about what makes this film a success and the thing that comes to my mind is that that there that, that anxiety i guess that you had about creating something over time and then having it actually turn into something that uh gels together uh i think makes it sort of more exciting when mm-hmm. we're watching it, even though we're not necessarily paying attention to that. I think it's, by definition, a risky move, and it, apparently, you know, no one's really seen anything like it in a narrative context. I mean, I think there's some documentaries that revisit characters over time, and you kind of have this longitudinal study of lives, and I've always been kind of fascinated with that scientifically and stuff, but uh, in a narrative, you know, it's... Uh, I guess at the end of the road here, I can say why no one does it, because you're giving up a lot of control. You know, film film people are, are by definition, control freaks. You have to kind of bend the elements to your will to tell your story, and you kind of have to be. So this was kind of admitting our one of our biggest collaborators here was an unknown future. Predictable, as in there will be a future, and these kids will grow up, but unpredictable in that... You just don't know who they're going to be or what the what the vibe is going to be um, uh, of them. So I just kind of had a confidence that the film could could adjust, and it was part of the design to just include and incorporate not just the changing people. I have a cast, all four major cast members: Patricia Arquette, Ethan Hawke, his parents. You know, they're getting a year older every year too. So it was to collaborate with them and and the culture. The world's changing, you know, everything around you sort of getting a year older and changing. So we shot a lot of things. We didn't know, you know, they're canvassing for Obama in 08. We shot that before he won the election. If he would have lost, it would have been an interesting footnote, you know, but it wouldn't have be the same, you know, as it feels today with him still president. We filmed a lot of little elements out of the culture that kind of express a moment in time, but it's hard to say exactly what resonates into the future. You know, we were shooting a period piece film, but we were shooting it in the present tense, which, you know, all these things you just never, you never do that. Right, so then what do you think the biggest dilemmas were for you as director in this film? It wasn't really a dilemma. It was just part of the storytelling challenge, but obviously a... uh, 
a patience <laughs> to, <laughs> to accept these 4,200 days shooting schedule of which we shot, you know, let's say 40 days. Um, but use that to our advantage. All that gestation time was, was, um, kind of wonderful. Movies don't afford you that often. Usually, you know, you put all your thinking up front and then you're shooting and it's this, um, this, juggernaut is <laughs> is moving and you're trying to stay a step ahead of it it's rare you get to step back and just think you know and feel so i got to do that every year i would shoot i'd you know edit with my editor and then we just think about it for a year what does mm. this film need how's it going or is is it expressing what i wanted it to express do i need to bring up certain scenes or push back things i have in mind and you know, so we were working off of a certain playbook, but it was open for a lot of uh, collaboration and inspiration. It was, like I said earlier, it's just sort of designed to incorporate that. You know, it was, you know, this big collaboration with uh, people who are growing older and, and the culture changing. We're talking with Richard Linkletter about his film Boyhood. You know, it's... Um it's interesting because it's not unusual in films for the actors to be the one who are doing sort of the improv, <laughs> but you're sort of doing the improv uh, year to year. Were there times where you thought it was going in a certain direction and then later on you realize this isn't really where you want to be going when you're filming? Huh. No, I, I think I had so much time to think about it in the in the interim year that it was always very um, planned out, outlined, structured, workshopped, rehearsed, and, you know, we would film every year, and I cut very little. I'd say we have less on the editing room floor uh, than most films, you know, by far. So it's actually pretty precise, but again, with that year to think and work through all the bad thoughts and, you know, all the things that wouldn't work, the cliches, all the things I've seen before, and try to always be dialed into what's unique about these people's lives and what kind of story I've always been trying to tell here. It was kind of a tonal consistency I was going for that I thought, you know, it was just a director's job to maintain that. So the movie's really not... Um, more than a collection of these kind of intimate moments um, in the family. You know, it's stuff that would get cut out of most movies. But I knew, I think the way we perceive cinema and the way we identify that it would kind of have this cumulative effect as you see years going by. In one sitting, you're watching 12 years go by. So you would kind of be invested the way... The way in real life, the cast and crew were invested. Every every additional year you put into the film, you were that much more invested. So you can imagine that built over the years, by the end, it's like, well, we've all kind of put our lives into this thing. And it feels that way as an audience member, too. You watch it and you see these kids growing up and things changing. You kind of feel like you've put in a half, you know, some years here. It's like these are this is your family. You have to think about it, how it, um, you know, relates to to your own life. You just made a really important point, which is that you include in the film many things that most filmmakers would leave out. And it's actually those are the elements that make the film uh, kind of sparkle. <laughs> well, most... I think the Hollywood narrative tradition these days is just every film is propelled forward by plot or story you know it's these kind of storytelling rules that if it doesn't move the story forward 
And if it doesn't, you know, up the ante or the stakes or the, you know, these kind of highly wound narrative artificial structures that when they work great, you know, everybody's happy, but they can often feel pretty false. And um, that kind of artifice would not work at all in a film like this, where I'm really asking the audience to believe this as some kind of reality. So I think it was important for you to, uh, if you're going to relate to it, it can't feel too trumped up. And so I think I've largely replaced the the general notions of plot with structure and time which to me is much more organic to the way we perceive the world, if you think about it, the way we process time in our lives and ourselves passing through time. I'm trying to replicate that in the movie, which is plenty of structure. That's that's plenty of that's plenty of um, outline and structure that you need to understand where you are in a movie. A lot, it, to introduce some kind of bigger plot elements in there it would feel really artificial. Not a lot of our lives. I think we'd all admit... Our lives are a big, you know, character piece. Obviously, and there's a there's a story. You know, we naturally the way we seek patterns in our lives, we seek stories, and so we all are living in our own narrative where there's a story of our lives. That makes a lot of sense. But the idea of a lot of plot intrusion is pretty foreign to the human psyche. But it works well in storytelling. Obviously, when it when it works well, but you know it, we have to admit it's kind of a construct. Well, it is funny because so much of film is really about editing and about time, and you're playing with it in an entirely mm-hmm. different way than uh, than probably how you were trained. <laughs> well, I think I wasn't trained. That maybe that helps. By <laughs> 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 the way, we we think I've always been around the margins of uh, traditional storytelling, or always trying to push the narrative. The notions of cinematic storytelling, I think there's a lot of uh, uncharted territory, let's say, that uh, just the properties of cinema and the way we identify and, um, you know, the way we take in films, um, there's a certain power there innately in the art form that can be used to tell a story in a certain way. You don't really need a lot of these um, overly dramatic, trumped up, um, you know, plot points. I think there's something powerful just in the image itself and how the viewer takes it in that, that they can potentially tell tell a story in a different way. And that's what this is. It's one big story. It's kind of an epic of the intimate. You know, most epics have epic subject matter, and this is kind of an epic of ordinary lives, you know, ordinary people. And that was an interview with Richard Linkletter. The film Boyhood has opened at Bay Area Theaters. My name is Raina Cowan, and this is Cover to Cover, where we look at the issue of film for a half hour once a month. And to continue our discussion today, we're switching to the Jewish Film Festival that opens uh, tomorrow. It runs through August 10th at many different Bay Area locations, San Francisco, Palo Alto, San Rafael, Berkeley, and Oakland. And there are certain films that really excited me about this festival, and one is regarding Susan Suntag 
A new documentary by Barry filmmaker Nancy Cates. She was last here uh, with her film Brother Outsider, Life of Byard Rustin. So welcome to KPFA. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yes, it's nice to have you here again. Now, Susan Sontag is an interesting character to make a film about because she's a cultural icon. She's an intellectual challenger. She was a political activist. And she was very self-referential and difficult, uh, not to mention... Uh, all the different books that she wrote, the different themes that she focused on, the different lovers that she had. You had a lot to cover in um, a, a film that really, you know, her her political and cultural life was very active for many, many years. So what pulled you into this story? Well, I just want to say that a lot of people told me that I was nuts to try to make a film about her. And particularly any film about a writer has this big problem of like... There's no footage of her sitting at her typewriter, which is what it was until later years. It was a computer. Sometimes she wrote by hand. But, you know, writing is not an action. So there's that just to begin with. But I had been interested in her even as a, you know, 20-year-old. I think lots of women of my generation looked up to her when they were in college or, you know, when they were young women. And I didn't really know anything about her. I thought I did. But in some ways, this film is the middle-aged me looking back on the 20-year-old who was who looked up to this woman and trying to understand who she was and then who I was as well a little bit. But I, I think I was looking for some idea of an adult woman who was smart, who was not stuck in suburbia like my parents. Well, I'm I'm thinking about the film and the way that you structured it because there's the two parts. There, you're both going through sort of her history. I mean, you don't start at the beginning, but then you go back and we we hear about sort of all the different themes in her writing. And at the same time, what I liked about the film is that you try to play with a structure and come up with the way that were, I don't know, as if I imagined what her mind looked like with all these words and ideas kind of going through it. Um, there's a lot of interesting kind of semi-experimental but evocative imagery that you're using to tell the story. So you didn't do it in such a straightforward manner. What made you make that decision? Well, thank you, first of all. Um, I guess I felt that you know, we spent a lot of time making this film. It was hard to raise the money. And one of the positive things about that is we had a long time to think about the visual style of the film. And very early on, one of my collaborators, David Peterson, who cut one of the trailers, said, you're going to have to find some metaphor for her mind or series of metaphors for thinking and writing. And then there's also a practical part of this, which is when you read someone's words, you need something to look at. So we had to figure out, well, what What's, what are we going to be looking at when someone is reading her words? And we were very lucky to have Patricia Clarkson read the, the words of Susan Sontag. She's not the narrator, but she's reading what Sontag wrote in her journals and in her from her books. Um, so the experimental imagery evolved over a really long period of time, and part of it was done with me and Sophie Constantino, my cinematographer, who's very gifted. But we also collaborated with a man named Louis Clark, who is from L.A., and he's an experimental filmmaker, and he does this thing called strip collage where he takes images and kind of glues them onto clear leader using 16 millimeter and then rephotographs them. And I saw a film that he did this way. And this is kind of hard to explain on the radio. I saw a film he did this way and it was sort of like you took another film and you put it through a blender or something. And I thought that was a really interesting notion of how our minds work, almost a Buddhist notion where things are just flying through your mind all the time. And I and I thought for someone who was obsessed with imagery and photography that this would be a fantastic way to take us out of the d sort of straight documentary part of the story. 
Now, one of the things that you talk about in the film, or different characters talk about um, in these interviews, is how she loved camp and how she was always uh, posing. That there wasn't the sense of, I mean, I don't know if you ever figured out who the real Susan Sontag is, or even uh, she might argue with what that means is, but um, through the course of you coming up with this structure and this story, I'm interested in what you wound up feeling like you learned about the real her versus this sort of cinematic giant her that uh, the 20 year old you fell in love with. Well, thank you for these wonderfully insightful questions. I mean, one wonderful thing about making this film was that we went to go to UCLA, which is where her papers are, and you can actually touch her notebooks. So now there's not just read, there have been some of them have been published, they're sort of notebooks plus journals, but you can open them up. I mean, she spent a lot of time in Paris, so a lot of these notebooks were purchased in Paris in the 70s, 60s and 70s. And it's sort of like like the equivalent of like if you could cut open her skull and peer inside or something or open the hood of the car because everything's in there you know what she was thinking about what she was feeling what she was writing you know what movie she saw that week she loved to make lists um but i feel like the person in the journals is probably the real susan sontag and i think she knew they'd be published after her death or at some point but nevertheless there's a there's a frankness in her private writings that she, you know she didn't reveal until after her death that are that's very different than the public Sontag and I was actually I think really interested in the interplay between the public person and the private person but I also knew from the very beginning that we were going to fail if we said we're taking a direct bead on Susan Sontag like there is she's a very you know I like to use water imagery there's a lot of water imagery in the film it's like she's kind of that's who she is she doesn't want to be pinned down um so, um, you know, she went from one thing to another. I don't know if fluid is exactly the right word for her, but um, she she did not want to be fixed in a single position. And so we decided not to try to do that in the movie. And I think a lot of the imagery that we selected was an attempt to say, we are not going to tell you the definitive word on Susan Sontag. We're going to present you all the stuff and you can think about it. And it's it's almost hopefully at times a meditation on Susan Sontag. Well, I think that that succeeds. We're talking to Nancy Cates about her film regarding Susan Suntag, which is going to be playing at the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you know, the thing that's interesting is, as a therapist, it was so, was, you know, I was struck by how she kind of raised herself in a way, and that she actually had a different name. And then her mother, who was really not involved and was living in China and uh, comes back and marries this other person whose last name is Suntag and she's she changes her name both because that way she's not so uh, noticeably Jewish in a certain way but also it seems like it's the first of trying to figure out how does somebody become someone that she was really investigating in different ways throughout her writing and her life well, I mean, her mother did raise her, but she was gone a lot when, before the age of five, which is when Sontag's father died in China. And there was this whole mysterious part of their early lives, Susan and her sister, Judith, um, because their parents were so far away on the other side of the world. Her father was a fur trader in China. And... um now I've forgotten what you asked me. I'm sorry, but but her the, the the you were talking about reinventing herself. I mean, I don't know that she was given a choice about changing her name to her stepfather's name, which was Sontag. But in a way, like, would we really care about her as much if she were 
you know, Susan Rosenblatt or Susie Rosenblatt. I mean, it's kind of interesting that she she was given a quote unquote stage name or writer's name by her stepfather, whom she was ambivalent about. Yes. Uh, now, there's certain issues that you cover, uh, you know, her involvement in Sarajevo, her feelings about uh, 2001 and the whole idea of the way that um, the U.S. government represented um, a superpower and wasn't thinking about the impact that it had on the rest of the world, her work on AIDS, a lot of very sort of political themes that she dealt with through the course of time. And then you're also juxtaposing this with the ways that she was writing about philosophy and art. Did you have a sense that there was kind of a cohesive version of her? Well, I think she had this incredibly voracious mind. You know, she was, I mean, Wayne Kostenbaum, who's one of the writers and scholars that we interviewed, um, wrote this piece where he called her a cosmophage, which means someone who eats the world. <laughs> you know, he sort of made up this word. Uh-huh. And maybe it's a real word in Greek. I don't know. But that's who she was. So it wasn't that she saw politics as being secondary to literature or to dance or to film. She just wanted it all. And so she was incredibly voracious. I mean, I think her political commitments were very serious. And she not only, you know, protested against Vietnam, she went to Hanoi. I mean, she was, which was illegal for a U.S. citizen. So, of course, the FBI started following her for a while. And there are these hilarious things because, you know, what does the FBI do with a writer's conference? They just didn't know what to do with that. So they stopped after a while. But, you know, like many other people in the 60s, she was, she did have an FBI file. Um, But her commitment to to bearing witness to war is pretty consistent you know from vietnam she went and made a film in israel at the end of the yom kippur war in 1974 she went to sarajevo when she went you know she didn't live in sarajevo permanently but she was there i think 13 trips during the height of the siege and you know she was an actual danger in some of these situations um and her statements about 9-11 were the things that got her into the most trouble, but they weren't so different. I mean, she was fairly consistent in her politics. I think she was less radical by the end of her life than she was in the 60s. She called the 60s her adolescence. Um, she was older than being an adolescent by the time the 60s started. She was, I think she turned 30 in 1963, so you can do the math. But um, but she did say that the 60s were her actual adolescence as opposed to the adolescence that she had when she was a teenager. Was there certain periods that you found particularly profound? Like, I mean, it looks like she was buried, for example, in Paris, um, that somehow she had done a lot of writing back then. And that part was, there was something about, I don't know, that deep down part of her was a romantic, I guess, was sort of a surprise to me, since often she came out with um, uh, such sort of strong opinions about things. I think she was certainly romantic in her romantic relationships, which were fraught and difficult and were mostly with women, but not entirely exclusively. I think that her notion of being a great writer meant that she wanted to be buried in Paris. Although one thing we wrote in some of our grant proposals is that her mind is actually buried in Los Angeles with her papers. Oh, her her body is buried in Paris, but her mind is buried in Los Angeles, which is very ironic since she really disavowed California and didn't think much of L.A., and I think L.A. in the late 40s was not. There were some European refugees. You know, Thomas Mann lived in, in L.A., but for the most part, it was not, like, an amazing cultural mecca in the 1940s. Forgive me if I'm offending anyone. <laughs> and she lived there at that time, so this was based on, you could say this is based on her idea. <laughs> right. Well, she was a teenager, went to North Hollywood High School in the late 40s. Um 
So it's a really interesting film. It has a number of screenings from the film festival. Uh, the first one is uh, Monday, uh, July 28th at Cine Arts at Palo Alto Square um, at 3.15. And then it's at the Castro Saturday, August 2nd at 2 p.m. And the California in uh, Berkeley on Sunday, August 3rd at 11.30. So it's one of those films where, you know, I watched it on my large screen TV, but I think it would actually be really wonderful to see it when it's projected in its big form because so much of the technical parts of it would really shine through. It is kind of a big screen film and I also want to mention that there's an extended discussion after the Castro screening so the Castro screening is at 2 o'clock on the 2nd and then around 4.15 um, there's a there's an extended discussion at Congregation Shar Zahab, which is uh, 290 Dolores Street, um, where there'll be some refreshments and people will have a longer chance to talk about the film and what's going on in it. So I hope people will come out and join us. So uh, this is Nancy Cates. Her film regarding Susan Sontag is playing at the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival, which runs through August 10th. If you want more information, you can go to sfjff.org. And the film festival runs San Francisco, Palo Alto, San Rafael, Berkeley, and Oakland. My name is Raina Cowan, and this has been Cover to Cover. I'll be back next month talking more about issues of film and culture. Thanks so much for listening. Nader wants to dismantle the corporate state. You there? Some of our clearest thinkers are Robert Reich, Cornell West, Lewis Lapham now compares Nader to Thomas Paine because he knows what he thinks, says what he means, and is right. Nader's latest book is titled Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State. Nader will be in Berkeley on July 30th, a Wednesday evening, 7.30 p.m. at First Congregational Church, 2345 Channing Way. This KPFA benefit wheelchair accessible will be hosted by Harry Chrysler, creator of Conversations with History. Advanced tickets available at brownpapertickets.com and our blessed supportive bookstores. That's July 30th, when you can get with this nation's most effective crusader for our rights, our safety, 